0: The Word of God, which we will read in preparation for today's sermon, is from Revelation 19, in verses 6 through 10. I'll give you a moment to turn there. It is as well printed in your bulletin, if you'd like to read along there. Revelation 19, verses 6-10. through 10. This is the Word of God for us. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Marriage is one of the Bible's key pictures of the relationship between Jesus Christ and His people. Uh, There are other pictures. Uh, Jesus is the head, and we are His body. Jesus is the cornerstone, and we are the spiritual temple of the new covenant. But really, among all the pictures given, perhaps the most arrestingly beautiful the one that most deeply reflects the care of Christ for us and his love for us is that Jesus is our bridegroom and we are his bride. This feast, this marriage supper we've just read about, it's a picture of what will one day be. This will happen. This is what will happen when Jesus returns at the end of this temporary age and ushers us, His bride, together into the forever age to come. This passage lays out for us the anticipation, the adoration, the purification, the celebration, and the fixation of Christ's people on that future Glorious day. And it therefore has profound implications for how we live now. So, see with me these five observations in turn. First, from this text, observe with me the anticipation we see. Notice in verse 7 let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. Embedded in those words, has come, is a deep sense of fulfilled anticipation. And that's what makes marriage such a potent picture of uh, Christ's return for the blessing of His people. Marriage is the fulfillment of the heart's great desire. Marriage is that first promise of love's first hope finally coming true. Again, how beautiful it is that God, of all the pictures he could pick, of every earthly institution, he chose the picture of marriage, the relationship of sweetest intimacy and deepest affection. That is what he chose to exemplify the fulfillment of our longing anticipation for the return of Christ. And make no mistake, to be a Christian is to long for and look for Christ's return. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives parting words to his disciples. And then he, to quote Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, Jesus was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while well, they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go. Into heaven The New Testament expands this theme at length in many places. A Christian is nothing if he's not, as it were, someone who has an eye on the sky looking for the return of Christ. This is how the Bible ends on this note of forward-looking anticipation. The very last words tell us that, what, that Jesus says, "Surely I am coming soon," the response is, "Amen, come, Lord." Jesus. And so the Christian lives in the conscious, eager, and joyful anticipation of the return of Christ for his bride, the church. It's very interesting to me that in talking with engaged couples, they often can tell you exactly how many days, sometimes even how many minutes, it is until their wedding day. Never have I heard an engaged couple tell me how long they've been engaged. It's always how long it is until the wedding. The focus is forward. It's always, well, we're engaged and we're getting married in three months, two weeks, three days, five hours, 14 minutes, handful of milliseconds, but really, who's counting? Well, so too, Christians should have a forward focus. Focus. It is good and right, and of course, we should recognize and celebrate and remember, Jesus broke into my life 25 years ago with His grace. He saved me from my sins. But believer, don't live your life just in the past tense, rear view mirror. We have a forward focus. There is a magnetic hope drawing us onward. Look to the sky in your heart every day. Hope in the return of Christ for you. This matters when the days feel like drudgery, as you slog through battles against sin and discouragement, when brutally difficult situations come into your life. Never forget that every day you live is one day crossed off the calendar until the inevitable return of Christ. And so we live with anticipation. And you get a sense for that in this text, that the marriage supper of the Lamb has Come, finally. But let me share with you something even more amazing, something you may not have considered. Jesus Christ lives now with anticipation for that day as well. Jesus longs for the day of His own final return. As thrilled as we may be for the marriage supper of the Lamb, our hope is always somewhat divided. We're always fighting the effects of sin that make us not hope as purely as we really ought to. But Jesus has no sin. And Jesus is the one who loved His bride, the church, enough to come from heaven for her, to live for her, to suffer for her, to die for her. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What greater joy could Jesus have then returning back from the right hand for us bodily and finally seeing the fruit of all he endured for come to full fruition, presenting his Ephesians five twenty seven bride in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, his holy without blemish church glorified forever. Jesus is full of anticipation for that great day. It's his marriage supper. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, when the entire church of all ages, whether we live to that day and are caught up in the sky with Him or whether we're part of the great global resurrection of all those who have ever lived to stand before the judgment seat of God, which will happen on the final day of this age, only on that final day will the total church, the full universal church, the Bride of Christ in total, only then will we be corporately called together for worship For the very first time, in the flesh, with Jesus in the flesh, all there together. And Jesus will survey out before him the full fruition of the joy that he endured the cross to buy. When Charles Spurgeon preached on our very text, he emphasized this point. He emphasized the anticipation of Christ for this day. He preached, we do not know the longings of the heart of Christ for that day of glory. For this he lived. For this he died. What an encouragement when we're feeling the depths of the disconnect between that future sinless glorified day and this current struggle and sinful slog along the way. When you feel weak and insufficient, focus on the marriage supper of the Lamb. Focus on the way Jesus longs to present you blameless. Focus less on your own insufficiency and more on the all-surpassing sufficiency of Christ to finally bring it all about. Jesus longs in heaven for His bride to be made whole. Jesus eagerly desires to see you clothed in the holy splendor He died to secure for you. When your faith is weak, remember that Christ is more than strong enough for the both of you. So there is this anticipation, both ours and Christ's, for this marriage supper to come. Second, notice with me the adoration Along with honor and service and reverence, adoration is one of the core concepts of what we call worship. Notice that the text we read began with roaring, thunderous adoration. Verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Imagine the sound of the loudest crashing waterfall you ever heard or the sound of the most ear-splitting crack of thunder in the most violent storm you've ever been caught. And then imagine the sound that you would hear at such roaring, thunderous volume. It's voices. And they're crying out in adoration. I don't know if you have a home security system Um, But one thing I know is that whenever I live in a home with a home security system, there will come a moment when I accidentally set that thing off. If you've ever done that and you, in your frantic code entry as it beeped aggressively at you, didn't make it, and the siren went off, you know those things are loud. I talked with a home security installer about this once and he said part of the reason that they are designed to be so incredibly loud is that those caught up in the act of robbing when it goes off are supposed to actually have to throw their hands up over their ears and in so doing drop whatever of your stuff they were trying to carry off. Well, Revelation 19.6 is something like that. This thunderous roar when the heavenly siren of worship sounds, we too will throw up our hands. Not in pain, because our glorified bodies actually won't be capable of that particular sensation anymore. Praise God, Revelation 21.4, there will be no more pain. But rather... We will drop every bit of glory we ever robbed from God. The God to whom we owe it all. We will throw our hands up together at the thrill, the joy, the beauty, the song of adoration to the Lamb. John is describing the united worship cry of that fully assembled universal church and that final day. Imagine it. A world full of all Christ's churches finally together, singing one song to one Christ, receiving all the glory. And that means that this is a choir that will include every voice of every redeemed child of God throughout every age. Brother and sister in Christ, do you realize you are reading a prophecy of a song you will one day sing, you will thunder, you will roar. We will sing this together in the very physical presence of Christ. Oh, that our hearts would be oriented towards worship today. That we would be drawn out of the smallness of the day today. And that we would live now for the sake of the Christ. We will one day adore together in glory when we join the new creation choir and we thunder and we roar our worship to the Lamb. Observe with me third in this text, the purification. The song sings on in the midst of verse 7 to explicitly mention marriage for the first time and to make a comment on the bride's garment. Because isn't that what we do at weddings? Everybody's got a comment on the bride's garment. Well, we have a bride's garment comment here. Pick up with me in verses 7 to 8. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. We're talking about what the church looks like on that final day. That's the point of the imagery of the bride's Garment. So let me simply emphasize first what the garment is, and then second what the garment is not. As to what it is, the fine linen, right and pure, is a representation of righteousness, but in a twofold sense. It is a representation of righteousness, both of the pure cleansing bought for us by Christ and also the righteous redemption of our lives through following Christ in righteous deeds. Do you see those two truths there in the bride's garment? Notice first, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Grant is the language of grace. It's the language of gift. It's the language of giving something away. Theologically, we can say it's the language of imputation. Something that is somebody else's by right is credited to you as though it were yours. It's granted. This bright purity is nothing that we self generate or achieve through our own moral scrubbing. In the book of Revelation, white garments are a consistent picture of Christ's cleansing work in us. Revelation seven thirteen to 14 reads, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? There's the white robes. And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's the blood of Jesus. It's the power of the cross. That's what makes us bright and pure. That's how we are justified. By faith, God declares us forgiven and righteous through Christ and through Christ alone. And so the white robes indicate the work of Christ applied to us through justification. And yet we clearly would not fully honor the text of Scripture if we said it had nothing at all to do either with our practical everyday renewal through the grace of sanctification. Because the fine linen of the garment is, at the end of verse 8, the righteous deeds of the saints. G.K. Beale writes that a classic theological tension is thus expressed in these two verses. On the one hand, the bride prepares herself. Verse 7. Well, on the other hand, she is given, she is granted her garments, verse 8. Matthew Henry saw the same thing. He wrote the robes of Christ, these are the robes of Christ's righteousness, both imputed for justification and imparted for sanctification. You see, the water isn't muddied between these two rich theological truths. They are brought together in harmony in Christ. It's a picture of the completeness, the wholeness of salvation. In Christ, we are justified in an instant. We're granted the robes on the basis of Christ and Christ alone, declared righteous and fully forgiven. And yet in Christ, still in Christ, still by grace, we live out the process of sanctification every day. But it's all in Christ, all of grace, all to His glory alone. And yet, in trying to sort out what the robes are, brothers and sisters, please do not simply pass over our second point of emphasis regarding the purification, and that is what these garments are not. What are they not? Well, for one, they are not the shame of Eden's nakedness. You see, in the beginning, in the garden, our first parents sinned and knew they were naked and they were ashamed. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, God's people will be fully clothed and adorned as a bride for her husband. Not cheap fig leaf coverings insufficient, but the robes granted us from heaven. We will be fully clothed. No shame anymore. They are also not the filthy and stained tatters of our sin. Isaiah calls out our best works apart from Christ as filthy rags. But then Isaiah 61.10 announces we have the glorious gospel exchange of righteous robes for those filthy rags. It reads, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom. There it is. As a bridegroom, Isaiah 61.10 decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And notice with me finally, this heavenly garment is not a hospital gown. And it's not a burial shroud. And the simple reason is that at the marriage supper of the Lamb and from then on and forever, all equipment and adornment of human frailty and death Will be obsolete. There are no hospitals there in the age to come. There are no graveyards there. There is no brutal diagnosis in a doctor's office or heart wrenching phone call in the middle of the night because there's no need. Johnny Erickson Tata, paralyzed in a swimming accident in the prime of her youth, paralyzed from the neck down, once wrote, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that's not theologically correct. But, she writes, that's her, by the way, saying that. I'm quoting her. (laughs) She goes on, but I hope to bring it. and, and, And put it in a little corner of heaven. And then, in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior holding his nail-pierced hand, I'll say, thank you, Jesus. Again, it may not be theologically correct, but isn't it beautiful to imagine the marriage supper of the Lamb, this celebration going on, and there, out just beyond the periphery of the feast, a pile of discarded wheelchairs and other obsolete paraphernalia of a broken, fallen world, broken and fallen no more. Johnny talks about how she hopes to thank Jesus for that chair, for the privilege even of sharing in His suffering, for the blessing of bruising that drove her closer to Him. Brothers and sisters, only the hope of heaven can make a person talk that way. Only the gospel can make a lifelong paralysis, just a momentary affliction before an eternity of perfect restoration. All of this is only true because of Christ and will be fully realized at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Observe with me now, fourth, the celebration. Do you see these words? Roaring, crying out, rejoicing, exulting. Glory, it says. The fact that the wedding supper of the Lamb is a wedding supper of all things. A celebration. It teaches us that we have full cause to live our lives with gospel-fueled hope. We know how the story ends. The story ends in joy. The last chapter of this age, which is just the first page of the next of what C.S. Lewis described as beginning chapter one of the greatest story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. No matter how deep today's sorrows may be, the story of everything ends in joy for all God's people and starts an even better story that never, ever ends. Christ has joys for us we can't fathom. Imagine trying to describe an ocean to someone who's only seen puddles. You'd talk about water and you'd say, yeah, it's water, but it's so much bigger. It's so much better. Well, so too, the highest joys of this life are puddles compared to the Pacific Ocean of what Jesus has in store. 1 Corinthians two nine. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. God uses a marriage supper because that's about as good as it gets in this life. But the marriage supper to come is so much bigger. It's so much better. Puddles to oceans doesn't begin to describe. Fifth and finally, observe with me the fixation. What is a fixation? A fixation is a relentless, maybe even obsessive focus. We speak of fixing our eyes on that which captures our attention. We are fixated on something that fascinates us, that thrills us. Keeping with the Wedding imagery, it's the reason the best view in the room when the door's open and the bride's back there is not actually looking back at her, it's looking at that groom up front and watching his face. You usually can't see the bride anyways because everyone stands up and they're all craning out for their, their look. Look at the groom. Watch his face explode with joy. There's nothing else in his universe. His fixation is all on her. Well, so too there is a fixation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's all on the Lamb. That thundering, roaring worship song this all started with was fixated on Christ. It said, let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. At the end of the passage, when John falls down before an angel in worship, verse 10, the angel of heaven says, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Even angels in glory when a man is understandably overwhelmed by them. And in the Bible, angels terrify people. Forget the little cherub with a halo hallmark stuff. Angels terrify people. They fall on their face. It's not even shocking here that an apostle would, would, would be struggle with temptation to worship this thing. And yet the angel says, no, 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 no. Huddles to oceans. You've got no idea. I'm nothing in light of Christ. Look to Christ. Look to the Lamb. Worship God. The anticipation is for Christ, the adoration is unto Christ, the purification is through Christ. The celebration is over Christ. The fixation is all on Christ. I love the way this is pictured so poetically beautifully in the hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. The third verse, I think it's the third one pictures this, and it, and it pictures us as, as the bride, and Jesus is the groom, but listen to what it says. It says, the bride eyes not her, gar- her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his nail-pierced hand. Why? The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. We sing another hymn about the things of earth growing strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. True enough, here's the better truth. The things of heaven will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Because whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So reads Psalm 73. We've looked at the marriage supper of the Lamb, but we haven't fully noted the weight of the combined symbolism of the very phrase itself. The marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, it's combining Jesus as loving groom and Jesus as loving groom sacrifice he is our redeemer the perfect husband to his bride the church better than the best of husbands ever pictured him to be because he first laid down his life for her like a pure and spotless innocent lamb the lion of judah reigning in heaven is the lamb of god who was slain on earth The Lamb slain is the Lord resurrected who lifts us up and calls us home. Fix your hearts on Christ today. Fix your hearts on Christ, maybe for the very first time, and be invited to the invitation and be there at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Fix your heart and faith on Christ and through this Gospel, live forever together with Him. Fix your hearts on Christ and be granted to wear the robes He washed for you in His very own blood. Fix your hearts on Christ for the grace and sustaining mercy to follow Him in those deeds of righteousness He's redeemed you unto. Fix your hearts on Christ to be sustained through valleys deeper you ever would have thought you could walk. Fix your hearts on Christ and be reminded that one day all Christ's people will be given away to Him at the best wedding ever. Fix your hearts on Christ and know the truth of the angel's words. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Did you hear that? Blessed are not just for the future. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is a pronouncement of blessing on you. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your word is light. Your word is life. Your word declares to us He who was called the incarnate word, even Jesus. He is our great need. Lord, your word is said to be like fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Lord, we have doubts, we have fears, we have hesitations in fully embracing your gospel and believing a grace like this could be true and a Savior who is a husband like this could be real. Oh, Lord, burn it all away and draw us closer to Christ. Lord, our hearts are often hard and resistant to your ways and to your will. Oh, Lord, may your word be like the hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. And may we throw our hands up in adoration of the Lamb. O Lord, take this gospel and apply it deeply into the hearts of your people, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.